When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thank you for your support on Patreon, Brett Woolridge. You may know Brett as the wool salesman to the court of Louis XIV, or you may not, because I just made that up. But if you would like a shout-out on when diplomacy fails, you know that you should head to Patreon. More on that later, but for now I hope that you enjoy the latest episode of Bismarck Rise. Hello there, my lovely history friends and patrons. Welcome to the second episode of Bismarck Rise. I hope you're enjoying yourself as much as I am, and that you liked that massive episode there that we just released. Episode 2, as you can see, is a little bit more digestible in size, but it still contains an awful lot of critical information and important goings-on. The years 1851-53 to were very important indeed for Bismarck, as he started to find his feet in Frankfurt, and came face-to-face with the full force of Austria's influence in the German Confederation. The German Confederation was a seriously important body, and we're going to have to wrap our heads around it if we want to understand the challenges that Bismarck faced, and the triumphs that he would later achieve. This episode here will help you do that, but it will also introduce you to other figures as well, such as Felix von Schwarzenberg, who was in many respects Bismarck's counterpart in Austria. And the Bismarck story would have been very different indeed had Schwarzenberg still been in Vienna in 1862, when Bismarck took the helm of Prussia into his hot little hands. Before going any further, it's probably worth explaining exactly what the German Confederation was. I know we said that it had been resurrected by Austria and on the direction of Schwarzenberg in 1850, but we haven't said much else about it. If it was resurrected in 1850, what did it look like beforehand? Well, the German Confederation of the pre-1848 years was itself recreated in 1815 on Napoleon's Confederation of the Rhine model. The difference being that Austria would take the place of France in this confederation. Metternich guaranteed it, letting go of petty rivalries and claims to revenge in return for stability. And it would have been easy to pursue these claims. Don't forget a lot of Germans fought on Napoleon's side, sometimes until nearly the very end. The German Confederation was a loose confederation of 39 states, and the Federal Assembly in Frankfurt represented the sovereigns, not the people. This was not a democratic institution by any stretch. Austria, Prussia, Bavaria, Saxony, Württemberg, Hesse-Kassel, Baden and Hesse were all important enough states to have one vote each, but 23 smaller states 
shared five votes between them, and the four free cities of Lübeck, Bremen, Hamburg, and Frankfurt itself shared one vote between them as well. As far as systems of representation go, the Frankfurt Assembly was not designed to give citizens a voice, but to ensure greater cooperation among German monarchs, and to serve as a place for debate on any pressing issues that affected all of the Germans. For each of these states to have a vote, they would have to have an envoy to represent them, and this was to be Bismarck's new job. He was to be the envoy for Prussia, and he was to carry the vote forward. However, there was a definite hierarchy in the Frankfurt Assembly, and in the German Confederation as well. Since the German Confederation had been incepted originally to guarantee Austria's position as the arbiter of the Germanys, its reimagined version, which emerged in late 1850, could be expected to fulfil that same mission. Bismarck expected to run up against Austrian opposition, but he didn't desire a break with the Austrians yet. At this point he was searching just for assurances and recognitions of Prussia's place in Germany as THE Northern German power, or, at the very least, the most important German power after Austria. And it would be appreciated, dear Austria, if you did not allude to your superiority every five minutes. Had circumstances been different, it is entirely possible that Bismarck would have travelled to Frankfurt, acquired the assurances he desired, and moved on with his life, less of a reactionary and more of a well-rounded diplomat, a friend to the Austrians, and a preserver of not merely the status quo in Prussia, but in Prussian diplomacy. As we know, Bismarck rejected that path. In the process, he rejected the plans which the Prussian king and the Prussian government had. The reasons for this rejection have a lot to do with Bismarck's character, but arguably they have more or just as much to do with the attitude of the Austrians and of Chancellor Schwarzenberg, who instructed his envoy at Frankfurt to preserve Austria's position at the expense of everything. It was necessary to repair Austrian prestige after the disasters of 1848, but Schwarzenberg went further than that, relishing his chance to rub Prussia's nose in her defeat, and refusing to consider the possibility that Berlin had a claim on some sort of special treatment. As far as Schwarzenberg was concerned, or at least as far as he claimed to be concerned, Prussia was just another of the 39 states. Prussia might have been louder, but it was no more or less important than the Saxons, the Bavarians, the Hessians, or the Württembergers, and it was certainly not more important than Austria. So determined was Schwarzenberg to enforce this policy that this relatively unknown and unfortunately short-lived Austrian minister effectively changed history. Within a few months of his arrival, as we'll see, Bismarck's eyes were opened to the impossibility of making Austria, well, as he put it, see sense. Henceforth, he would argue, Germany was not big enough for the two of them. Prussia, Bismarck would claim, could never realise its potential so long as it was tethered to the Austrian cart. The solution, Bismarck insisted, was to oppose Austria at every single turn, or as he conceived it, still using the cart metaphor, when Austria hitches a horse in front, we hitch one behind. The stage was thus set for a confrontation which no one in Berlin was prepared to imagine, and which Bismarck himself had not even conceived of when he made the significant journey towards Frankfurt to fulfil his first political post of real note.
Before we go any further, I wanted to make a note of Bismarck's most important private relationship, that being with his wife, Johanna. Before we do that, I want you to picture what you imagine to be Bismarck's ideal wife. Imagine, considering what we know about his character, the kind of wife he would have looked for. Imagine what kind of woman he would have wanted. And now, it's time for you to understand that Johanna was none of these things. This is a fact which has confounded historians. The fact that Bismarck didn't go for the socialite, beautiful, vibrant wife which we might expect him to do, has been seen by historians as an attempt to escape political life. He tried to retain a part of his country younger past in Johanna, who was, by all accounts, socially awkward, lacking in real beauty, lacking in any enthusiasm to learn any language but her regional German, and perfectly willing to complain if she felt neglected or frustrated at her husband's penchant for getting himself employed in far-flung places. One thing which Johanna and Bismarck certainly shared in common was their love of the country, particularly their massive estate at Schoenhausen. During this phase of his life, when Bismarck was leaving the country behind, in return for a vibrant and involved political career, he confessed his pain at having to leave that nice, quiet part of his life behind. But he also did something else when writing to his wife, which he was to keep on doing for the rest of his life. He lied his very large head off. One of his favourite go-to lies was the claim that he had not sought out this latest appointment to Frankfurt, or, as he wrote on the 3rd of May, 1851, to Johanna, Weigh the anchor of your soul and prepare to leave the home port. I know from my own feelings how painful the thought must be for you to leave, how sad your parents are. But I repeat that I have not with a syllable wished or sought this appointment. Whatever happens, I am God's soldier, and where he sends me I must go. Now, in fairness, Bismarck had not directly applied for the position in Frankfurt, largely because he was unaware of it, and also because he would not have imagined that such a promotion was within his grasp. Yet, to claim that he had not wished for this position, or done anything to reach this position now, was ludicrous. We've already seen how he had been hoping to get a ministerial or any kind of posting for months, but behind closed doors... Bismarck was willing to use his influence, mostly with the Gerlach brothers, to argue his case to his king and to the new minister-president, Edwin von Manteuffel. The question is then, knowing all this, why did Bismarck even bother lying to his wife? A simple explanation is that Bismarck was so accustomed to lying by this point, he had lied incessantly to his parents and to his friends, and the lie that he had not sought this position was one he would repeat even after 1862 when it was patently obvious that he had waited around in Berlin until news of his confirmation as minister-president was handed to him. So perhaps lying was so second nature to Bismarck it was just a reflex. Or perhaps, as Jonathan Steinberg suggests in his biography of Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor lied and invoked the wonders of the divine because he wanted to inspire Johanna to see his promotion as predestined and as blessed by God. If Johanna did see this, then perhaps she would be less prone to complaining. Her parents might be more understanding about her exit from the provincial Pomeranian scene, and generally the couple would get on together better, since Johanna would not be able to resent Otto for pulling her away from everything she loved and drew comfort from.
While it feels unfair to judge Johanna now, knowing much more about Bismarck than her inclinations or her character, it is blatant, looking back, that the two, on paper at least, were fundamentally unsuited. Opposites attract, that's true, but when the rising statesman requires his wife to represent him at social functions, when he needs her to understand several languages and be capable of entertaining guests, when he longs for someone to understand his political decisions and to share his excitement for advancement, Bismarck would have to look elsewhere. It is unusual, and perhaps Bismarck was even beginning to realise that Johanna would not fill the mould of society wife, which so many of his contemporaries expected to have. A week or so later, in mid-May 1851, shortly after arriving in Frankfurt and getting to grips with his new location, Bismarck wrote one of the most poignant and touching letters to his wife, which simultaneously revealed exactly where Johanna was lacking in his eyes. Bismarck wrote, One request I do have, but please keep it to yourself, and please do not let mother, Johanna's mother, that is, hear it, or she will make a fuss worrying about it. Occupy yourself with your French as much as you can in the time, but do it as if it occurred to you on your own. Read as much French as you can, but not by candlelight, and not if your eyes hurt. I did not marry you in order to have a society wife for others, but in order to love you in God and according to the requirements of my own heart. To have a place in this alien world that no barren wind can cool, a place warmed by my own fireplace, to which I can draw near while it storms and freezes outside, and I want to tend my own fire and lay on wood, blow the flames and protect it, and shelter it against all that is evil and foreign. This was a pretty affectionate and beautiful letter, but it also showed that Bismarck was eager for something. He wanted Johanna to become, in spite of what he said, he wanted her to become something that she was not. Johanna never would make any serious effort to learn French. She didn't bother to keep up with the latest fashion. She remained her own person, her own woman. But, at the same time, she did keep Bismarck happy and sustained, offering him a consistent escape from the buzz of political life. This was important for Bismarck because it meant that whenever he did want to return to his estates with his family, he could, if he genuinely wanted to, switch off from the political game. He could lose himself in the wilderness of Pomerania and the bosom of his family. Certainly, it is evident that Johanna adored him despite his efforts to change her and the fact that they could never really talk about Bismarck's true passion in life, that of politics. Johanna demonstrated her love for Bismarck in a way that I really understand through food. Visitors to Bismarck's home, whether it was in fashionable Berlin or deep in the depths of the country, would always marvel at Bismarck's enormous appetite for food and drink, which, considering his size and frame, we might expect. But at the same time, Johanna seemed to show her love by giving Bismarck food, and sometimes this translated itself into her insisting on Bismarck getting even the richest dishes as a second helping. This was a kind of pattern that might have started off as affectionate and somewhat endearing, but later on in his life it was to affect Bismarck terribly. And things would come to a head in 1884, as we'll see in the future, when Bismarck simply had to stop his old habits and change himself for the better. Because as it was in that year of 1884, when, of course, there was other stressful things going on as well, Bismarck was eating and drinking himself into an early grave. 
I can't help but feel sorry for Johanna when I look at her portrait. As a young woman, her dark hair and eyebrows are certainly striking, and there is a hint of a smile. But by her later years, one portrait in particular, tells a very different story. It almost looks as though Bismarck asked her to pose for yet another photograph, and the irritated Johanna rolled her eyes and glowered at him just as the photo was taken. Resources like these, be they letters or photographs, provide us with a unique window into the innermost workings of Bismarck's life, a life which would sustain him through the heights of his successes and the depths of his despair. If he had had the choice to marry again, it's hard to know what he would have done. Certainly, Bismarck never ceased to treat Johanna with respect and affection, even if he lost his patience sometimes, and in later years became less patient in asking her or commanding her to do things, as the traditional dynamic between a German husband and wife would be expected to be. Bismarck, begrudgingly though it seemed, did accept her for who she was, or at least he stopped complaining about who she was, which was only fair, since Johanna, after all, had to put up with an awful lot from Bismarck. Bismarck was in full-on politician mode in early May 1851. He was encouraged by the opportunity and fascinated by the road which lay ahead of him. Frankfurt, what could all this mean? First things first, Bismarck had to get a promotion. He was promoted to the position of Privy Legation Councillor on the 8th of May, and this was necessary because it would give him the high rank that he needed to serve as the legitimate voice of the King in Frankfurt. After all, he was there to represent the King, not some petty land tag, some jumped-up politician, and least of all the Prussian people. As promotions often do, this came with a bump in salary, and a far larger one than Bismarck was maybe expecting. His new income of 21,000 Reichsthalers amounted to roughly £3,000 in 1871 conversion rates, which was a very impressive upgrade indeed. For the record, £4,000 a year was enough for most high society gentlemen in Britain to maintain their horses, go on the hunt, have a big estate, etc, etc, live the high life in other words, and Bismarck was able to do that in Frankfurt thanks to this salary. He had come to the job in Frankfurt with an awful lot of money worries, but these money worries would vanish, and from this point onwards, with some exceptions, notably when he was promoted to ambassador to Russia, and the salary there was a lot smaller than this one, but for the moment at least, he was able to pursue the opposite agenda of before. No longer worrying about money, he was now, despite what he would claim in his memoirs, he was now consumed with the purpose of taking on as many assets, and building up as big a bank of money as possible. With the result that by the time of his death in 1898, Bismarck had amassed a private fortune equivalent to nearly 80 million euro, or 85 million dollars in today's money. This topic has long fascinated historians, but it was of immediate utility to Bismarck, because it meant that he could now live the life expected of a man in the upper echelons of Prussia's diplomatic corps. After saying goodbye and paying the necessary respects, Bismarck took a train to Frankfurt on the 10th of May, and within 25 hours he was within the city. Quite an impressive journey time, if he did say so himself, and he did. As far as his admiration for Frankfurt went, this ancient German bastion of culture and history, a city which had long served as the bulwark against foreign influence, 
and was first captured, if you remember our 30 Years War series, it was first captured by Gustavus Adolphus in 1631. And this was the first time Frankfurt had fallen to a foreign invader, but the years since had been good to this capital of German history, tradition and culture. Frankfurt served as the kind of de facto centre of international German culture. It was here where many foreign diplomats would converge. And it was also here, as we said, that this Frankfurt Assembly, where all the different German princes and states would, in theory at least, have a vote. Considering the myths and history surrounding Frankfurt, we could hardly be surprised that Bismarck was taken in by the experience. At the same time, though, as far as his actual responsibilities for his job went, it only took Bismarck a week to start complaining. Frankfurt is horribly boring, he wrote, adding that he and his colleagues as envoys to the assembly were doing nothing but spying on each other, as if we had something worth finding out and worth revealing. Life here is almost entirely pure trivialities with which people torture themselves. I am making astonishing progress in the art of using lots of words to say nothing. I fill pages with nice round script, which reads like leading articles in the papers, and if Manteuffel, after he has read them, can say what's in them, then he knows a lot more than I do. What exactly was Edwin von Manteuffel, the Prussian minister-president, basically the Prime Minister of Prussia, supposed to make of these dispatches from his newly appointed Frankfurt envoy? It's easy to forget now, after all, though his contemporaries didn't at the time, the fact that Bismarck had no diplomatic experience to speak of when he departed for Frankfurt. He had had, said the historian A.J.P. Taylor, only six months' experience of administration and none of diplomacy. In all the history of the Prussian monarchy, Bismarck was the only man ever appointed to a high diplomatic post without previous service. Even Bismarck was himself aware of this lack of experience. He wrote in his memoirs how King Frederick William, when informing him of the promotion, added, You have a good pluck to undertake straight off an office to which you are a stranger. To which Bismarck says he replied to his king, The pluck is on your majesty's part in entrusting me with such a post. However, your majesty is of course not bound to maintain the appointment as soon as it ceases to justify itself. I cannot myself be sure whether or not the task is beyond my capacity until I have had closer acquaintance with it. If I find that I am not equal to it, I shall be the first to demand my recall. I have the pluck to obey if your majesty has the pluck to command. To this, the king, if he had just sat through that spiel, which Bismarck claims he did in his memoirs, he replied simply, Then we will try the thing. Try the thing, try Bismarck's appointment to Frankfurt, both men did. Bismarck would hold this position in Frankfurt through various ups and downs until early 1859, by which time King Frederick William would be incapacitated by a stroke to be replaced by his younger brother Wilhelm as regent, until Frederick William passed away two years later, whereupon King Wilhelm I was crowned on the 2nd of January 1861. This is all to say that by the time Bismarck's post in Frankfurt was over, everything changed in Prussia, and affairs had changed even more radically in Europe. The 1850s were to prove a turbulent, eventful time for Europeans, in comparison to the 1840s, which had been quieter 
notwithstanding those 1848 revolutions. Bismarck, as the saying goes, was in the right place at the right time to exploit these developments, which included the Crimean War, don't forget. But there was no guarantee that this would be the case when he departed for his new post. It must be emphasised again that the King and Minister President Manteuffel really were taking a chance on their brash, energetic, formidable, but also green-as-grass Juncker. Just to make sure he didn't completely mess up from the very beginning, Bismarck would be accompanied by another senior figure who he was expected to learn from before taking over from him later in the year. This was a kind of probationary period, and in spite of his earlier complaints, Bismarck did await anxiously for news of confirmation of his position. And this confirmation came in mid-August. In other words, for mid-August 1851, Bismarck was master of his own Prussian castle in Frankfurt, and he set about trying to make this castle look like home by completely falling out with the Austrians. Bismarck tried, or at least he claims he tried, it is certainly the case that Bismarck went to Frankfurt with the intention of cooperating with the Austrians, but these illusions were soon disabused. There was no way if Bismarck wanted to fulfill his own ambitions for his career, and by doing so, elevate Prussia to a position of some predominance in Germany, there was no way to do that through cooperation with Austria alone, simply because, at this point at least, the Austrians were not going to allow it. Bismarck was not so foolhardy as to despise all Austrians on sight, though. For one Austrian in particular, he made an exception, and he even visited him in his summer residence along the River Main. Here, in the holiday castle named Johannesburg, which has nothing to do with South Africa, but Bismarck met face-to-face with a man you've probably heard of, Metternich. This was the first time the two had met, and oh boy, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they did. In case you weren't aware, Metternich had been Austrian foreign minister since 1809, and he had been chancellor since 1821, and he sat on those two significant seats until the revolutions of 1848 drove him into retirement. Several historians have called the period from 1815 to 1848 as the Metternich era, similarly to how many historians call 1870 to 1890 the Bismarckian era, and they often look at that era, Metternich's era that is, with rose-tinted glasses, in the same way as they look at Bismarck's era as well. Metternich was the kind of statesman who brings powers and qualities which were both great and terrible, and in the process, comes to define an era. He was what you would call formidable, a figure who achieved great and impressive things, but who himself wasn't necessarily a particularly great person. The post-Napoleonic era leading up to 1848 represented a period of mostly unbroken peace, thanks largely to the system which Metternich instituted. Again, the parallels are clear. This system Metternich put in place was a lot like Bismarck's system that was established in 1871. Which is all to say that it was a system that was very, very far from perfect, and it almost certainly delayed the currents of liberalism and the genuine hopes of several individuals, which exploded out of their box in 1848 as a result. Just like it was with Bismarck, though, there was something undeniable within Metternich, which Bismarck certainly recognised. As Edward Crankshaw described, Together, the old wizard and the young genius found common ground in their astringent attitude towards the follies of mankind and their delight in the superb and celebrated Johannesburg wine from Metternich's own ancestral vineyard.
This was destined to be one of those moments in history where two personalities of such calibre and importance meet together that the historical time continuum itself threatens to unravel. This didn't happen, of course, but Metternich did provide Bismarck with a glimpse into his potential future. Although he didn't yet harbour ambitions to rule Prussia as Metternich had ruled Austria, Bismarck must have noticed the sense of melancholy which more than four decades on the administrative throne of Vienna had instilled in this old man. Interestingly enough as well, conversing with Bismarck seems to have done Metternich the world of good. The shock of 1848 had brought him down a peg, but talking with this promising young diplomat seems to have convinced him that all was not lost for conservatism and for the future of Germany. Unfortunately for Metternich, he would live to see his system, which had been based upon Austria's friendship with Russia, collapse during the Crimean War. In the same way that Bismarck would be forced to watch in 1894, when after the Kaiser had dropped his pilot, Wilhelm II proceeded to push the French and Russians together against all odds. Bismarck reserved his respect for men like Metternich, but interestingly, surprisingly enough, he doesn't even mention this meeting in his memoirs, perhaps feeling unable to do the meeting justice himself. Either way, the meeting in the summer of 1851 is vague in details, but it is clear that they did meet, and the meeting itself is unequalled in its symbolism. Although they didn't know it at the time, here was the old meeting the new, the old power of a supreme Austria, face to face with a rising Prussia, and coming to terms with the fact, in Metternich's case, that the ship had sailed. Metternich remained one of the few Austrians that Bismarck appeared to respect. He certainly reserved no such feelings for Friedrich Franz, the Count of Thun and Hohenstein, who will call Hohenstein because life is too short, and this despite the fact that Hohenstein boasted one of the most impressive pedigrees in the Habsburg Empire, coming as he did from the old Bohemian families, and Hohenstein certainly considered his own Bohemian dynasty as one of Austria's defining families a major part of the Habsburg Empire's history. Needless to say, it took Bismarck only a short time to discover that, surprisingly enough, he couldn't stand Hohenstein. Bismarck wrote to Leopold von Gerlach that his Austrian counterpart Hohenstein was a mixture of rough-hoon bluntness, which can easily pass for honest openness, aristocratic nonchalance and Slavic peasant cunning. He always has no instructions, on account of ignorance of the business he seems to be dependent on his staff and entourage. Insincerity is the most striking feature of his character in his relationship with us. There isn't a single man among the diplomats of any intellectual significance. Most of them are self-important pedants filled with little business who take their letters, patent and certificate of plenitentiary power to bed with them, and with whom one cannot have a conversation. These were the kinds of men, Bismarck added, who put on solemn professional airs when all they want is to ask you for a light. And he added that the Austrians in particular are constantly engaged in intrigue behind a mask of jolly bonhomie and are always trying with smallish matters of form to cheat us, which so far has been our entire occupation. If the Austrians were bad, then to Bismarck, the smaller German states' representatives were even more laughable for how serious they seemed to take their own positions. The envoys from the little German states, Bismarck said, 
are caricatures of old-fashioned, bewigged diplomats who immediately put on their report face if you ask for a light for your cigar and look as if they're about to make a speech before the old imperial Olic court if you ask for the key to the toilet. And speaking of lighting a cigar, certain things only Austrians were allowed to do, Bismarck insisted on copying and following the same privileges as that Austrian Hohenstein. If Hohenstein smoked, then Bismarck would too. If Hohenstein was late to a meeting, Bismarck insisted on starting without him. If Hohenstein invited Bismarck to talk in private, but wasn't ready and made Bismarck wait, Bismarck left. If Hohenstein appeared dressed down, Bismarck removed his fancy clothes as quick as he could to appear in a simple dress shirt as a point of principle. This was part of Bismarck's policy of passive opposition to the Austrian party at Frankfurt, a realisation of the when Austria hitches a horse in front, we hitch one behind approach that we alluded to earlier. It was difficult to take them seriously, and there were certainly elements of culture shock as the Austrian diplomatic approach was different. Crankshaw noted that Hohenstein was a master of that casual, off-hand, gratuitous offensiveness as much a mark of Austrian officialdom as it was its unreliability and idleness. It's easy for us to imagine Count Hohenstein as a representative of Austria swaggering around Frankfurt, considering himself above all other deputies and taking no time at all to consider the sensitivities of his Prussian colleague. Of course, it's entirely possible that once Bismarck rubbed Hohenstein the wrong way in their earlier encounters, Hohenstein was in no mood to make things easy for him. We are given a glimpse from the other side of the diplomatic trenches, where Hohenstein made his home, and where he wrote on Bismarck to Vienna that In all fundamental issues which concern the conservative principle, Herr von Bismarck is perfectly correct and will cause damage more by his overly great zeal than by hesitation or indecision. On the other hand, he seems to me, as far as I can judge, to belong exclusively to that party which has its eye only on Prussian interests and which places no great confidence in what the German Confederation can accomplish in that cause. Was Bismarck being partisan for the sake of it, or had he become convinced from an early stage that only through opposing Austria would Prussia get what it wanted? What Bismarck wanted at this early stage was to demonstrate that Prussia was entitled to the same rights and privileges as the Austrians, and to get Vienna to recognise this. The problem was that Schwarzenberg was still riding high over his victory at the Olmutz humiliation, and he continued to enjoy the continued humiliation of the heirs of Frederick the Great. The German Confederation, to Felix von Schwarzenberg in Vienna, should be no different now to when it had first been conceived in 1815, as, in other words, a vehicle to promote and enhance Austria's interests, and nothing more. It was also a platform to demonstrate the supremacy of Austria, which rose like an impressive tower far above the other small German states. It was also a method for reminding all the German states where they stood, and Prussia, just like the other German states, was included here. Bismarck, writes Edward Crankshaw, seems to have taken one long look at Count Thun von Hohenstein and decided that cooperation with Austria through gentlemanly persuasion was a hopeless dream. Meanwhile, according to Crankshaw, Schwarzenberg was giving in to his personal emotions when he should have calculated coldly. 
One of the defining qualities of Metternich's diplomatic ability was his recognition of the fact that sometimes one had to swallow their pride while negotiating with potential allies or enemies. This was seen in Metternich's treatment of the Prussians. While he recognised that the Prussians were by no means as powerful as Austria, it was also important to stay on good terms with and maintain a friendly relationship with Prussia, because if Berlin and Vienna fell out, then that would have posed serious strategic problems for Austria, and it would have brought the German question right to the forefront of European relations again. Metternich, don't forget, was trying to balance the post-Napoleonic order. He was trying to maintain a friendship with Russia, keep an eye on France, stay on good terms with England, etc. etc. And the last thing he needed was a Prussian complication. This is all to say that Felix von Schwarzenberg was not Metternich. While he was cold, calculating, ruthless, energetic, ambitious, etc. etc., and he was certainly more intelligent than many of his successors would be, he was also vindictive. He took things personally, and he saw, as we have said, he saw that this was a great chance to stick it to Prussia, rather than stay good friends with her. Since Schwarzenberg refused to see things the way Metternich had done, Bismarck became determined to make him see it, by literally being a nuisance and standing for every privilege which could possibly be had. He would show Hohenstein in Frankfurt and Schwarzenberg in Vienna that Prussia would not be taken for granted or pushed to the side. Eventually, Bismarck surely imagined, Schwarzenberg would see sense and he would determine to cooperate with the Prussians instead of treating them as inferiors. At this point, we have to emphasise there was no consideration of a war with Austria. Bismarck was prone to keeping all options open, but for at least the foreseeable future, he had more than a few peaceful tricks up his sleeve. One of these tricks was the fact that Prussia was, by virtue of Austria's policy, one among many German states that felt it was improperly treated. Surely it couldn't be too hard to rouse the other German states onto Prussia's side, and thereby build an even stronger block of opposition against the Austrians in Frankfurt. When AJP Taylor considered Bismarck's approach in the early Frankfurt months, he noted that Bismarck was the kind of person, at least at this stage, who only saw his immediate opponent. He didn't really think of the long game at this point. In Berlin, Bismarck's opponents had been the Liberals, and his horizon had been limited to the immediate Prussian sphere. Now that he was immersed in German politics, and a certain level of internationalism as well, Bismarck acclimatised to the fact that his opponents were now the Austrians, never mind the Liberals. Taylor does believe that Bismarck went to Frankfurt with the intention of cooperating with Austria, and this is echoed by several historians as well. But Taylor adds that the overmighty behaviour of the Austrians would have been enough to sour the mood even of a less sensitive man. The Austrian delegate wrote AJP Taylor, arranged the business and often settled matters without consulting his colleagues. Bismarck insisted, like the Russians at the United Nations, on knowing every detail. Taylor also records an anecdote where Hohenstein, the Austrian delegate, was seen to sneer at the legacy of Frederick the Great and compared Prussia to a man who, having once won a prize in a lottery, that lottery win being Frederick the Great's exploits, based his annual budget on it. In other words, Hohenstein believed Prussia was coasting on the reputation and exploits of Frederick the Great. To this, Bismarck replied, If that is what they think in Vienna, Prussia will have to speculate in the said lottery again. 
As far as the question of why Bismarck changed his attitude towards the Austrians, we may not get wholly to grips with the question of why, but we at least know the when. The change seems to have occurred in the second half of 1851, once Bismarck had been securely confirmed as Prussian envoy. Bismarck wrote in February 1852, Since the month of September last year, Austria has abandoned the ground on which we used to... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. To meet. This would suggest that some grave incident occurred in September 1851, which convinced Bismarck that he could no longer work with the Austrians. But a quick consultation of the records show no terrible cataclysm. The Austrians were more arrogant than usual, without the instructions of Metternich to temper their approach, but the official Austrian attitude had always been to assume on Vienna's supremacy. Even Metternich believed in this supremacy, and he flattered Prussia because flattery, as Taylor understood it, was his way. Flattery was not the way of Felix von Schwarzenberg, though, and it was certainly not the way of Bismarck. Indeed, while no terrible event occurred in September 1851 to rouse Bismarck against Austria, what did occur was that Bismarck's position as sole Prussian envoy was made official. It had been made official in mid-August, but by September, Bismarck may have got the feeling that he was finally able to spread his wings a bit. Now that he was secure in his position, it seems that Bismarck allowed himself, perhaps deliberately with no wise old advisor who had been here before and who had lived through those Austrian offences, it seems that Bismarck gave in to his natural feelings and thereupon became offended. Once more, writes AJP Taylor, Bismarck changed his policy simply because of his personal feelings. Indeed, Bismarck had only appeared pro-Austrian in the first place because he had disliked Radowitz. Remember Radowitz, that radical foreign minister whose policy of confrontation had ended with the Almuth's humiliation. Bismarck seems to have become converted to Radowitz's programme of a Germany without Austria when he felt that Austrian representative Hohenstein 
was not treating him as a social equal. This personal resentment was translated into high-flown political terms. I conceived the idea of withdrawing Germany from Austrian control, or at least that part of Germany, united by its spirit, its religion, its character and its interests, to the destinies of Prussia, that being northern Germany. Bismarck wrote that in his memoirs, but he also accepted that this would not be of direct benefit to the German Confederation's states as a whole, but he added, Advantage for the German Confederation cannot be the guiding line of Prussian policy. Bismarck's policy was to put Prussia first, and he possessed a wide range of ideas, always open to change, about how to achieve this. We might imagine Bismarck sitting in Frankfurt until 1859, when he was eventually appointed ambassador to Russia, but in fact the revolutions in train travel had made a journey to Berlin by no means out of the question while he maintained his post. This provided Bismarck with the opportunity to, as he saw it at least, persuade the king and Minister-President Manteuffel to see things his way in person when letters failed to do the job. King Frederick William, though he was wary of Bismarck, claimed to like contradictory advice, but then the king was constantly indecisive, an aspect of his character which Bismarck found maddening. Amidst reports sent by Bismarck to the effect that Austria could not be cooperated with, Frederick William was also advised to capitalise on the tide of liberal German opinion and to pursue an alliance with the United Kingdom. The marriage of his nephew Frederick to Queen Victoria's first daughter was negotiated and considered as early as 1851, when Victoria Jr. was only a child, and Frederick proposed in 1855 when she was only 14. By January 1858, the two would be married, seemingly confirming this new liberal tide which would bind Prussia and Britain together for the foreseeable future. A smart man, a betting man, even a cynical man, would have said that within a generation, Britain and Prussia would have become inseparable and a liberal constitutional democracy would have pervaded Berlin with Frederick and Victoria Jr. being the agents for this revolution as he took over from his aged father to rule Prussia as its liberal king. History, of course, had other ideas. Frederick's father, Wilhelm, you know, Wilhelm I, as in the first emperor of Germany, ruled far longer than anyone had expected. He lived to the age of 90, only dying in 1888. By that point, Frederick was dying of throat cancer and only ruled Germany for 99 days. The ultimate kick, of course, was that the progeny of Frederick and Victoria Jr. were supposed to symbolise the great Anglo-Prussian bond. But this progeny contained, let's just say, some bad seeds. Their only son was Wilhelm II, and Wilhelm II, as we all know, led his country to war against the United Kingdom, the complete opposite of what had been expected. None of this could be predicted in the 1850s, for sure, and if anything, Bismarck would have surely feared that his country would be overcome by the liberal tide, which threatened to drown it. As informed and realistic about the way things worked as he was, Bismarck would surely have looked at the rules of succession and who would be coming down the line next. He would have taken one look at Frederick William, seen that he had no children and that his younger brother was next to succeed him, and then he would have banked that Wilhelm, the younger brother, wasn't going to be long for this world either, 
Perhaps by the late 1860s or early 1870s, Wilhelm would have died and his liberal son Frederick would have taken over. It certainly gives you a pause for thought to think of what might have been had Frederick not got throat cancer. Would Bismarck even have ascended to the heights that he did if that had been the case? Could he have bullied and manipulated the younger Frederick to stay in power in the same way that he did that to his father Wilhelm? We cannot know, but what we do know is that Bismarck harnessed all of his energies and talents towards ensuring that no such liberal tide ever reached Berlin's shores in any meaningful way. While he did so, and so long as he served his king Wilhelm, he was constantly in a state of war with Frederick and Victoria Jr. Above all, because he anxiously expected them to take over in the near future, and he knew that his views and their views were completely incompatible. Of course, before Bismarck planned ahead for all of this, he would have to acquire a meaningful amount of power, and in 1851-52, despite his apparent epiphany, and his insistence on travelling to meet with the king to advise him on policy, whether the king wanted him there or not, Bismarck lacked any genuine power to speak of. At this stage, all he was was a king's representative in Frankfurt. Thus, we see Bismarck engage in an incredibly active policy. Literally, it was very active, because the man travelled extensively to the courts of the southern German states on his own initiative. He built a picture in the process of the extent of Austrian's influence over these smaller courts, and he came to his own conclusions ever so gradually that Austria's influence was too strong to break by diplomatic means. Bismarck, we should reiterate, wasn't sitting still in Frankfurt for the next eight years. He even had time to return home to Berlin several times, and to sit in Prussia's lower house, presumably to make presentations about his progress. This he did in late March 1852, after having had several months to settle into his Frankfurt position. It was while standing at the podium in the lower house that Bismarck was confronted with a potentially life-changing challenge. Some time ago, he'd informed one of the Prussian deputies, Georg von Vinke, about the anecdote where he had lit his cigar in Austria's presence, largely to irritate Hohenstein. Georg von Vinke, who must have travelled to Frankfurt at some point in previous months to see for himself how things were going, was fed this story by Bismarck in confidence, but Vinke didn't keep it to himself. When Bismarck was presenting his story to the lower house, Vinke took it upon himself to challenge Bismarck publicly. He accused Bismarck of lacking any diplomatic discretion, and he claimed that, so far in Frankfurt, it seemed Bismarck's only triumph had been to light a cigar in the presence of the Austrians. Vinke then recounted in full the story which Bismarck had told him in Frankfurt. Bismarck had surely assumed that Vinke would keep the cigar affair to himself, and in response to Vinke's betrayal of his confidence, Bismarck publicly chided his opponent, saying that his remark exceeded not only the boundaries of diplomatic discretion, but even the normal discretion that one had a right to expect from every properly educated man. This stinging reply from Bismarck was not just a little bit too far, it was also tantamount to a challenge to Vinca's honour. Was Vinca not after all a properly educated gentleman, or did he not at least consider himself one? The day after this exchange, Bismarck recounts that one of Vinca's friends presented him with a message. It was nothing less than a challenge to a duel. 
48 hours later, Bismarck would stand face-to-face -face with Vinka in a bizarre scene, made all the more so by Bismarck's comments on the event, which he made in a letter to his mother-in-law in late March 1852, writing, The weather was so beautiful and the birds sang so merrily that all sad thoughts disappeared as soon as I got there. I had forcibly to avoid thoughts of Johanna for fear of weakening. With me I had brought Arnhem and Eberhard Stahlberg, these people were his juniors in Frankfurt, in case you were wondering, and my brother, who looked very depressed as a witness. Bismarck then mentions a cousin of Vinca's who stood as a neutral witness to the coming duel, and who proclaimed that the challenge had been set too high at four bullets each. In other words, each man would have four chances to shoot at each other, but this, to Vinca's cousin, was too much, so his cousin suggested that only one shot each should be fired. At this, Vinca's second piped up, and noted that if Bismarck would only apologise for what he had said to Vinca when he had questioned the man's education as a gentleman, then everyone could be on their way. You'll be unsurprised to learn that the proud Bismarck refused to apologise. Since I could not in good conscience do that, Bismarck said, we both took our pistols, shot on the command, and both missed. To Bismarck, though, this underwhelming exchange was not good enough. The reduction in the challenge annoyed me, and I would have preferred to continue the fight. Since I was not the man insulted, I could say nothing. That was it. Everybody shook hands. We can glean an awful lot from this scene. First and foremost, the idea that dueling was still an accepted practice among the Prussian elite, but it was clearly open to being reduced in lethality, somewhat reducing its effectiveness. A second point is that Bismarck came very close indeed either to suffering a life-threatening injury before his career had ever truly begun, or to maiming or killing someone and having that stain on his record for the rest of his life. A third point, which we must marvel at now, is that Bismarck seemed so completely unaware of how much was on the line here. More important it was to him and to Vinca, the question of honour which had to be answered before anything else. Once this question was answered, the apparently impossible quarrel between the two men which had brought them to nearly kill each other was over, just like that. All in all, this duel episode was a nerve-wracking chapter in the career of a man who never imagined, it seems, that anything bad could possibly happen to him. We often hear that young people think they're invincible, Well, here was a man in his mid-thirties, still walking around as though there was nothing that could possibly touch him. It was a dangerous way to live, but it certainly makes for a good story. One wonders how history might have transpired if Vinca had hit and killed his target, or if Vinca's cousin had not taken it upon himself to reduce the allotted bullets from four to just one. It may well have upset Bismarck deep down that he only had one chance rather than four to shoot at this rascal, but this change very likely saved someone's life. After the duel episode, Bismarck continued to shuttle himself around Germany. By early June 1852, he was travelling to Vienna, apparently with the mission to serve as a substitute to Count Arnhem. Count Arnhem, if you'll remember, was the man who had been his second in the above duel. Yet, the objective itself in Vienna was odd. Bismarck claims that the king himself instructed him to go to Vienna, and in his memoirs, Bismarck writes that the purpose for this visit was to go to the diplomatic high school in Vienna, where he would support Arnhem for a while, before taking over from him. 
Was Bismarck about to teach at this diplomatic high school? In fact, diplomatic high school was merely an expression. What it really meant was that Bismarck was about to acquire some first-hand knowledge of what diplomatic life in Vienna was like. He was to receive, in effect, an education by living this experience. We know that Bismarck wasn't about to teach in high school because we have a copy of the letter of recommendation which King Frederick William wrote for Bismarck to give to the authorities in Vienna. Temporarily, at least, Bismarck was to serve as Prussia's chief negotiator in Austria, even taking on some of the duties of the then ill Austrian ambassador, Count Arnhem. But what was Bismarck being sent to negotiate? Well, Frederick William's letter is worth quoting some passages from. Now remember, this letter is being written by Frederick William to Franz Josef, so it has the tone of one brotherly sovereign speaking to another brotherly sovereign, as though both were best friends and only had the interests of each other at heart. The reality was probably quite different, but it makes for interesting reading. Let's look at some passages from Frederick William's letter now. After he introduced who Bismarck was, just in case Emperor Franz Josef was unaware, the letter read, It is satisfactory to me to think that your majesty will thus make the acquaintance of a man who, with us, is honoured by many and hated by some because of his frank and chivalrous obedience and his irreconcilable attitude towards revolution down to its roots. He is my friend and loyal servant and comes to Vienna with a fresh, lively and sympathetic impression of my principles, my mode of action, my will and, may I add, my love towards Austria and your majesty. Love towards Austria and your majesty. Surely this was wishful thinking on Frederick William's part. Or maybe Bismarck, in his meetings with Frederick William, said what he needed to say in order to get the recommended accreditation. Certainly being sent to Vienna to act in this manner was an honour. It was something which Bismarck could add as a feather in his cap. And as someone who had boundless energy and always wanted to learn new things, this experience must have really seemed attractive to the young Bismarck. Frederick William continued to note that Bismarck could do what very few are in a position to do, give your majesty and your highest counsellors full information on many subjects, for if monstrous misunderstandings of old date are not too deeply rooted, the short period of his official functions at Vienna may be truly fraught with blessing. Herr von Bismarck comes from Frankfurt, where what the middle states big with their Rhine Confederation, rapturously call the differences between Austria and Prussia, which have always found their loudest reverberation and often their source. And Bismarck has observed these events and their ways with keenness and impartiality. So clearly Frederick William was not willing to let on to the fact that by this point Bismarck had filled pages and pages of letters to him about just how little love he had for Austria and the Austrians. The very last thing Bismarck was towards Austria was impartial. And yet, and yet, Frederick William continued to say, I have commanded Bismarck to reply to every question addressed to him on the subject by your majesty and your ministers as if they proceeded from myself. Should it please your majesty to require of him any explanation as to my view and treatment of the Zollverein affair, I am sure that my attitude in these matters will succeed in obtaining, if not the good fortune of your approbation, at least your attention. The presence of the dear and noble Emperor Nicholas, the Tsar had recently visited Berlin, has really done my heart good. And Frederick William now concluded, 
the sure confirmation of my old and fervent hope that your majesty and I are genuinely united in the conviction that our threefold union, immovable, religious and energetic, alone can deliver Europe and our wayward but so beloved German fatherland from the present crisis, fills me with thankfulness towards God and increases my old and loyal love for your majesty. This communication between Frederick William and Franz Josef, between the King of Prussia and his nephew, the Emperor of Austria, was of great significance, but Bismarck was slow in his memoirs to reveal why he had been asked to go to Vienna in the first place. As we said, Bismarck was to fill in for the Austrian ambassador who was ill and become chief negotiator in this high school of diplomatic experience. His mission was revealed in passing in the above letter though. You might have noticed we mentioned an unfamiliar word, the Zollverein, which may be puzzling, but this word meant, in effect, a German customs union. And now it's necessary to go into a little bit of background detail, but bear with me, it's not too dry. The Zollverein had been born in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, and by the late 1830s it had grown to include virtually all of the German states in its net. Through this arrangement, Tariffs would be normalised between all the German states, and they'd be reduced. It was a way of harmonising trade among all the German states. When it came time to trading with outside partners like France or like Britain, the terms of the Zollverein, the terms of any customs union, dictated that all of its member states negotiate as one. This arrangement meant effectively that foreign powers would have to negotiate through the Zollverein in order to do trading business, which in theory was supposed to protect the smaller German states from disadvantageous treaties. However, we might also recall that in the above letter, Frederick William referred to a crisis, and this crisis was relatively simple. The fact that the Zollverein included virtually every German state except for Austria. And this meant that in the sphere of economics, Prussia had a free hand to dominate Germany, having had its way with tariffs, insisting on particular agreements within the trading bloc, and generally throwing its weight around to great financial advantage. In fact, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that this Zollverein was Prussia's single greatest boon and advantage over Austria. Probably because it's economics, and economics can be a little bit dry, this great boon is mostly forgotten in the talk about wars and politics and Bismarck, etc, etc. But we would be remiss if we didn't include it here, because even though Bismarck didn't necessarily understand economics all that well, he did know that in order to stick it to Austria, he would use all tools at his disposal, which included, in this case, economics. In previous years, the Austrians had tried to make their own customs union without the Prussians, but Prussian ingenuity had won out, leaving the smaller German states with no choice but to join, and leaving the Austrians out in the cold. Whenever Vienna engaged in trade within Germany, she would effectively be bound by Prussian directives. It was virtually the only place where Prussia could properly fight back against Austria's influence. In short, Bismarck had been sent to Vienna to negotiate the potential entry of Austria into the Zollverein. After more than a generation of exclusion from this economic bloc, Austria wanted in. But neither the king, and certainly not Bismarck, was about to make this easy for them. Bismarck travelled to Vienna, probably with all the previous slights from the last year in mind. And the last thing he was about to do was to allow them access 
at least not without massive concessions in certain areas. Bismarck doesn't recall in too much detail what happened during these negotiations, though he does write in his memoirs that, Externally, I was received with more honour than I could have expected, but in the way of business, that is, in reference to the customs affair, my mission bore no fruit. Austria already had in view a customs union with us, and neither then nor later did I consider it advisable to meet their efforts in that direction. This was something of an understatement, really. Not only did Bismarck refuse to meet the Austrian efforts, Bismarck also used the Zollverein as a stick to beat Austria with for the rest of his career. Several years later, in 1863, he was still refusing to consider Austrian access to the customs union, preferring to leave Vienna disadvantaged and outside of it. Had Austria won the war in 1866 against Prussia, one of the major concessions which Prussia would surely have been forced to give way on would have been, probably, unfettered Austrian access to the Zollverein, which she would then be able to dominate, as she seemed to dominate other German affairs. AJP Taylor recalled how Bismarck took the lead against the idea of Austrian access into the Zollverein. He went on a special mission to Vienna, Taylor wrote, gave the Austrians many soft words, but held out on the essential point. It was fortunate for him that Felix von Schwarzenberg died suddenly just when the negotiations began. In fact, Taylor got the date wrong by a few months. Schwarzenberg died suddenly of a stroke on the 5th of April 1852, before Bismarck even arrived in Vienna for those negotiations, and before he ever had to reckon with such a formidable Austrian statesman. Schwarzenberg was just 51 when he died, which was young for seasoned European statesmen. Consider the fact that Bismarck would only be settling into his role as leading German statesman in his 50s. But Schwarzenberg's death spelt doom for Austria, though it wasn't clear at the time. Succeeding to the position of Austrian minister-president and foreign minister in Vienna was Count Karl Ferdinand von Buell, and von Buell held these posts until 1859. Buell was, in these positions, completely responsible for Austrian foreign policy abroad and among the Germanies, and in both spheres, it can be said without question that he comprehensively failed. Buell served to highlight just how important Schwarzenberg had been to the Austrian recovery after 1848. He also demonstrated that everything could change under a new administration. The succession of Buell was still being discussed in Vienna when Bismarck arrived two months later. The Hanoverian ambassador, in what Bismarck assumed to be a confidential conversation, picked Bismarck's brains and asked him if he intended to succeed Manteuffel as minister-president in Berlin once Manteuffel retired. I replied that I had no desire either way, at least at present, Bismarck said. Still, Bismarck believed, or at least he claims that he believed, that the king was preparing him for something. I believed that the king meant to make me his minister some time later on, wished to train me for the post, and with this object in view, had me sent on an extraordinary mission to Austria. It was my wish, however, for ten more years or so, to see the world as envoy at Frankfurt or at various courts, and then for some ten years more to be minister of state, if possible with distinction. Finally, to settle down in the country and reflect on my many past experiences, and, like my old uncle near Potsdam, to graft fruit trees. 
Hold on now, are we honestly supposed to believe that in 1852 Bismarck intended to serve under others, or that he imagined retiring after a reasonable career to the country where he would bend fruit trees rather than people to his will? There might be an element of truth in this claim, though. After all, Bismarck was loud in his lamentations and private letters to Johanna about his longing for the country, and there was no real reason why he should lie about this in his private correspondence to his wife. So perhaps he really did see himself retiring to the country. At this point, though, on the other hand, he was becoming consumed with high politics. He'd been thrust into it as something of a blank canvas. His brain had never been educated in the diplomatic manner like many of his contemporaries had, and this gave Bismarck a unique opportunity to either sink or swim based on his own intellect, on his own energy, on his own ambition. Needless to say, he relished all of the experience of applying his considerable brain power to his different tasks. Some of these tasks he set for himself. After several months of ignoring the advice of his betters, when Bismarck returned from Vienna to Berlin in July 1852, he can't have been too surprised that the reception there was somewhat cooler than usual. Bismarck noted that Manteuffel refrained from asking Bismarck to stay in his Berlin house, but Bismarck suspects that this move had more to do with his old Hanoverian friend warping the contents of his conversation about his ambitions, to the point where Manteuffel would now be suspecting of Bismarck gunning for his job as minister-president. It is worth noting how ludicrous it was to imagine Bismarck taking over from Manteuffel now, after only a year of experience in Frankfurt and not even having reached his 40th birthday. But then again, Bismarck had been promoted and pushed into positions far outside his knowledge and experience base. What was remarkable was that he always swam and never sank. He didn't provide Frederick William with the constant affirmation that he wanted, and too often he went his own way. But no one could accuse Bismarck of being feckless, ineffectual, lazy or useless. Despite the fact that Bismarck had sufficiently irritated the Austrians, Frederick William did want him to remain in Frankfurt and to continue to travel to Vienna if it proved necessary. This was communicated to Bismarck in a conversation he had had with the king in the autumn of 1852, while the two men were face to face on a train. Bismarck noted that he announced his position to the king, as if reasoning that the current posting did more harm than good to Prussian interests. I had incurred the dislike of the Austrian court and the service to your majesty at Frankfurt, and shall have the feeling of being delivered over to my adversaries if I have to be ambassador at Vienna. By this, we can deduce that Bismarck was clearly worried that his temporary replacement of the unwell Count Arnhem would be permanent, but Frederick William had no intention of making it so. The king effectively reprimanded him as though a father would reprimand a son who wanted to drop out of an expensive college. I will not command you to quit. You must go of your own free will, the king said, and beg me to let you go. It is a finishing school of diplomatic education, and you ought to thank me for taking charge of your education in this direction, for it is worth your while. According to his memoirs, Bismarck says that this conversation opened his eyes somewhat. I was persuaded that, the king being what he was, I could not attain any position as minister that I should find tenable. And Bismarck adds that Frederick William had looked upon him as an egg which he had hatched out himself, and in cases of difference of opinion 
would have always had the feeling that the egg wanted to be cleverer than the hen, that the aims of Prussia's foreign policy as they floated before me did not altogether coincide with his, was clear to me, as were the difficulties which a responsible minister of that master would have to overcome during his fits of autocracy, with his often abrupt changes of view, his irregularity in matters of business, and his accessibility to backstairs influences on the part of political intriguers, such as have found entrance to the royal house from the time of our elector's adepts down to later days. The difficulty of being at the same time an obedient and responsible minister was greater in these days than it was under Wilhelm. From this, we can note several important points. Bismarck didn't see himself as a minister under Frederick William, but under Wilhelm. That was something he could tolerate, and something, a situation at least, that he could excel in. Bismarck didn't want to be controlled. He needed space to operate. He wanted a ministerial post, but he couldn't work under a master like the current king. A king who was open to so many influences, and could turn at will against the legitimate servant. Bismarck also wanted a different foreign policy to Frederick William, which must have been obvious, judging by the way that Frederick William and Manteuffel had reacted to Bismarck's contrarian dispatches about how to treat with the Austrians. He was unable to reconcile these differences so long as Frederick William insisted on having his own way. Fortunately for Bismarck, his own interpretation of how Frederick William worked as a master and how Wilhelm would have worked as a master, worked in his favour. He would never have to really deal with Frederick William as king, whereas with Wilhelm, that relationship between subject and master was to be arguably Europe's most important relationship of all. All this was to say that Bismarck faced serious opposition in Berlin, and elsewhere, to his conception of where Prussian interests would be best served. Not only would Prussia be best served if she ditched Austria's friendship or pretense of friendship, she would also be served better if she looked further afield to other potential partners, such as France. Suggestions like these were not merely revolutionary. To his superiors in Berlin, these ideas of Bismarck seemed to border on crazy. At this point in summer 1852, just for the sake of context, France was honing its revolutionary character, and by the end of the year, they would appoint Napoleon III as emperor of a second French empire. Suddenly, the spectre of a conquering Napoleon would be reawakened, and it seemed as though Europe had gone back in time. But Bismarck saw through these assumptions. The fact that something of a rerun was going on in France didn't mean that there had to be a repeat of the diplomacy of those grand coalitions against Napoleon III's uncle. Thus began Bismarck's political and ideological development, the creation of what would become known as Realpolitik. At this point, all it was was an insistence that Prussia should shed all emotional and ideological obstacles which blocked her actual advancement in Europe, which included any distaste for friendship with such a turbulent and provocative regime as Napoleon III's France. For his part, Bismarck could even at this point see through the reality of Napoleon's stance. He was not nearly as dynamic or revolutionary as his uncle had been, and Napoleon III's main aim was to return France to its position of European glory, a mission which would surely involve at some point a confrontation with Austria for its European supremacy. This could surely only benefit Prussia, but not if Berlin's leadership interpreted this as an act of aggression against all of Germany 
or against themselves. Bismarck believed he had only a given amount of time to act before Napoleon did and before Germans were forced to choose between Austria or France. Bismarck would argue that it was possible to choose neither and to choose Germany or Prussia instead. In addition, he argued enthusiastically for the policy of action in some form. If Prussia was not actually serious about courting the isolated France, then there was no reason why her agents should not make it look as if she was actually interested, since this would spook both Vienna and the German states, and would surely make gaining concessions easier. Why, Bismarck asked, should Prussia remove so many of her options, publicly, no less, when she had nothing to lose and everything to gain, by playing the diplomatic game with a modicum of strategy and intelligence? He used an awful lot of chess metaphors at this point. We imagine that he was quite a fan of chess, but all he really used it for was to show that you can't very well win a game of chess if you take all of your pieces off the board beforehand. Bismarck was simply too far ahead of the game at this point. His letters to the government on the subject didn't just puzzle Manteuffel, they horrified him and they made Frederick William second-guess his approval for his appointment to Frankfurt in the first place. Was Bismarck crazy, they wondered, to advocate teaming with France against the natural order of German cooperation? Surely he could not mean it. In addition, let's not forget that Bismarck had no actual authority or position in the Prussian government. At best, he was a rising star in diplomatic circles. At worst, little more than a passing fad which Frederick William could put in trouble spots and solve serious problems, or he could simply ship off somewhere remote and leave him in cold storage. But certainly Bismarck was no doyen of diplomatic knowledge, and his wisdom at this point was not assumed. By advocating this course, furthermore, what end could possibly be reached? Prussia would be forced, if it did team with France, to close ranks not only against Austria, but also Austria's foremost ally, Russia. We should state for the record that one of the greatest obstacles in the way of reimagining Prussian foreign policy was the fact that the Austrian and Russian courts were tied together with an apparently inseparable bond. Tsar Nicholas had intervened, after all, in 1848-49 to save his Austrian friend from its Hungarian problems, and now he surely expected the young emperor, Franz Josef, to return the favour and show the same loyalty to Russia in its diplomatic concerns. Thus, it was safe to assume in Berlin that any crisis involving a war with Austria would necessarily incur the wrath of Russia. This was the same Tsar of Russia, don't forget, who had threatened to march soldiers into Berlin if Prussia didn't back down. If Bismarck was to have even a modicum of a chance in changing how Prussia viewed its relationship with Austria, and if he was to be in a position to properly challenge her, then the Austro-Russian relationship would have to be severed, and fast. But how? How was such an apparently unshakable bond between the Tsar and his nephew, the Austrian Emperor, to be destroyed, when it had never seemed so strong? Enter two key ingredients. The first being the new Austrian minister-president and foreign minister who we met earlier, von Buell. The second being something else altogether more significant. The eruption of a war in a far-flung theatre and the focus of all European attentions on that conflict for the next three years. After several years of peace and several years of carefully husbanding their resources, Austria was about to blunder headfirst into the Crimean War. 
With the eruption of the Crimean War, Bismarck could be forgiven for thinking that everything was about to change in Europe. In a sense, it was, but it wouldn't make his superiors in Berlin any more amenable to his suggestions that now was the time to dogpile upon Austria and take advantage. All of this will be revealed in the next episode, but for now I think we've gone far enough, history friends, so make sure you join me for episode 3, where we cover this period in a lot more detail. Thanks so much for joining me here, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I've enjoyed, well, performing it, I suppose you could say. Remember, this Bismarck story is continuing all over the place in our social media, and also on Patreon, where you can celebrate super quickly and access all these episodes all in one go. Wherever you decide to go, thanks again so much for taking the time to listen to this series here. Bismarck Rise has been a labour of love, and I love the fact that I get to share it with you. It's been a pleasure, but until next time, my name is Zach, this has been Bismarck Rise, and I'll be seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.